When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Hi, everyone. What you're about to listen to is a wide-ranging discussion I had with Dr. Jordan B. Peterson for his podcast, The Jordan B. Peterson Podcast. This episode was recorded on April 13th, 2021, and has already appeared on his podcast. Dr. Peterson has graciously given me permission to repost it on my own podcast. Hope you enjoy it and hear the full breadth of interest that we both share as well as our interest in making society a better place and increasing communication among people who may disagree with each other. So without further ado, I bring you my discussion with Dr. Jordan Peterson. It's good to see you. We actually have a couple of publications together eh, from a few years back. And and so, but we've strangely enough, never sat down and had a lengthy discussion. So hopefully Today, we'll have an opportunity to rectify that. So first of all, maybe you could tell everyone just exactly what a cognitive scientist is. Well, I think the important thing to recognize about cognitive science is it's an interdisciplinary field. So it doesn't just involve psychology, but it brings in philosophers and it brings in um, neuroscientists. It brings in computer scientists um, to all kind of sit down at the table and figure out what is the mind and what are the functions of the of the human mind? What are the limits of the human mind? Um, how does uh, the nervous system represent mind? So basically everything having to do with mind, but it's very interdisciplinary. And that that's what really was exciting to me about it when I got into it. I, I did my undergrad at Carnegie Mellon and I did a computer science degree and I did a cognitive science degree and it was really exciting to me to kind of figure out how all these different things could be integrated with each other. And how did a cognitive scientist who's at least 
technically more interested, let's say, in the mechanics of thought and, and abstract cognition. How did you come to be interested in the humanist tradition, which is the focus of this book, which we're going to talk about in fair detail today? It isn't obvious that those things have any necessary interrelationship. So what happened? Not at all obvious. Well, so as a kid, I grew up with a real deep fascination for understanding individual differences. I mean, I remember like just being a very young kid looking on the playground and wondering why someone could so effortlessly go in the jungle gym and why it, why I was so awkward. And, and I also had some early learning difficulties that made me try to understand what the only limits of my own, the only limits of my own potential were. So the, the, the interest that got me to the field was human intelligence. And um, I realized after enough uh, years in the field, and once my interest brought into creativity, which is the, the work we did together was on creativity when I was in grad school, um, and then now self-actualization and humanism, I realized that what I was really interested in was human potential, not intelligence. You know, intelligence, I thought, was the be-all and end-all of human potential. And then what I've learned, come to realize, you know, throughout my career is that um, that wasn't, that was just the beginning. Well, Galton, Francis Galton, who, who in some sense pioneered the psychometric study of IQ, was also interested in human potential, I would say. So in some sense, yeah. that's a return to the source. And it is easy to confuse intelligence with, well, the whole range of human talent and ability and, and differentiating all those different concepts and, and placing them in the proper uh, relationship to one another and identifying them for study is no trivial thing. So you mm -hmm. worked... You worked a fair bit on intelligence per se. So my junior year in college, um, I was uh, so curious about intelligence that I cold emailed Nicholas McIntosh, who was the head of the department at University of Cambridge. And I said, can I just take a year off my undergraduate studies and just will you teach me everything about IQ? Will you teach me everything there is to know about like um, everything we've known in the last hundred years about intelligence? And so I, he, uh, to my excitement, he responded to my email. And he said, sure, come over. <laughs> so I, I packed my bags and went to England. While I was, and this didn't count as a study abroad program. There was no study abroad program. So I just notified Carnegie Mellon, I'm going off to England to study intelligence. And uh, and it was just so exciting to me to be able to learn. How about, old were you uh, when you did that? 20 years old, probably. And he responded mm -hmm. to a cold letter and invited you over. Yeah, I, I must have. Uh, well, there, I think that he might, might have been impressed with some of Like I was um, Herb Simon's last research assistant at that time as well. And um, but I, I felt like there were limits to what I was understanding about intelligence through the expertise approach that I was learning from Herb Simon. I felt as though um, I wasn't learning about intelligence. I was learning about expertise acquisition and I didn't think they were the same, exactly the same thing. So anyway, um, yeah, so he must uh, he must have been impressed with my email. I mean, I was a real I was a, I was really uh uh, I'm trying to think of the word, an enterprising young man. I don't know. I'm trying to think of the right word. You know, I was like really excited to, to learn this stuff. Curious and enthusiastic. Yeah, I like that yeah, better. And, yeah. and obviously able to communicate that. So you went over to England and you worked with a psychometrician. Yeah. And so you yeah. worked with someone who was very interested in the formalities of measurement and careful definition of intelligence. And what, and, and what did you learn as a consequence of doing that about intelligence? 
Well, I learned a bunch of things. One one important thing I learned is that intelligence uh, has uh, multiple general cognitive mechanisms which contribute or give rise to a general intelligence kind of uh, function. Um, some, you know, there's this debate in the field about whether or not G or general intelligence is the thing that is causal of things in the world or if it's an emergent property of things. And I learned a little bit about this view that it, it, it's an emergent property of these domain general mechanisms. And the biggest one which captivated my attention was working memory at that time. And then that quickly led to me doing uh, and being interested in differences in sex difference, uh, sex differences in working memory. Um, and I came up with a hypothesis when I was working with him in college about that, which then led me to getting uh, studying with him for a master's degree to actually test that hypothesis. So let's walk over the psychometric view a bit. And I'll, I'll say some of the things that I think I know. And you can tell me if if they're out of date or if you're convinced that they're erroneous in some way. So essentially what the psychometricians have discovered is and established, and I think more credibly than any psychologists have established any other phenomenon within the field of psychology, is that there's a common mechanism or an emergent property that appears to characterize activity in relationship to virtually any set of abstractions. So if you if you put together a random set of questions that require abstraction to solve, so they could be mathematical questions or general knowledge or vocabulary, um, the sort of thing that even that you might encounter while playing Trivial Pursuit. If you put together a reasonable set of those and then you add up the correct scores and you rank order them across all the people who've taken that particular test, you get something that is a pretty accurate estimate of IQ. That's central tendency. It's that powerful. And that's related to long-term life success in, in, in attainment, let's say, economic attainment and career attainment, that accounts for about 25% of the variation between people in the differences in attainment. Is that... Yeah. That that seem roughly anything. I, I would I would I would do like a yes end if this was in prop yes. theater. I would I would yes end and say a, a central concept in this is the the idea of the positive manifold, because it's really interesting. And this was Charles Spearman's you know discovery in 1904. It's interesting that people who tend to do well on one of these kinds of tests tend to do well on other of these kinds of tests. And the thing which is why I thought the expertise acquisition approach I was learning in college didn't fully explain is that we're talking even with um, lack expertise in in like these IQ test items, abstraction, like you mentioned, they're they're a lack of expertise, and yet they're positively correlated with each other. And it didn't have to be that way, right, right, uh, Jordan? Because one could have proposed, well, the more you specialize in one thing, the worse you'll be in other things because um, you're devoting all your time and attention to one thing. But instead, we find that actually there is there are some general cognitive mechanisms that apply to any task and even novel, especially actually I would say especially, especially the novel task. Yeah, right. Especially. Because it's an it's it, it actually predicts learning new abstractions better than it predicts world, real yeah. world performance. And we That's should true. also note that the level of predictive accuracy is stunning compared to the predictive accuracy of virtually anything any social scientists have discovered apart from IQ. Yeah, I tweeted that out the other day. I said, it's astounding to me when people say, uh, so matter-of-factly, like IQ tests are invalid, when it is probably the most valid test we have in psychology. And that, of course, got a lot of comments like, well, that, that therefore, that just shows your whole field is shit. <laughs> yeah, and that's, <laughs> so like, oh. and that's completely wrong because the effect sizes in psychology, the, the valid effect sizes are uh, are 
uh, what would you call them, impressive when you compare psychology to other disciplines of its category of generalization, say. So the idea that the yeah. whole field is nonsense is is only put forth by people who don't have differentiated understanding of the field or of the social sciences that it might be compared with. The psychologists are the most um, sophisticated methodologists by far in all the social scientists sciences, as far as I'm concerned. So, yeah, there seems to be this misunderstanding or this uh, expectation of psychology that we're supposed to be perfectly reliable, that we're supposed to have perfect reliability of humans. And I don't think any psychologist has ever claimed to, to have that sort of level of precision. I mean, of course, a lot of people are going to fall between the cracks um, with these IQ tests. Um, and, and and I'm interested in those people, too. I mean, of course. but I'm also interested in the, in the statistical generalizations and the implications for society. I mean, you can hold both things in your mind at one time. Yes. Well, and you can also point out that accounting for 25% of the variation in something as complex as life attainment is unbelievably impressive, especially yeah. given how much effect random factors have on determining those outcomes, like, well, like health, for example, like physical and mental health. And while well, in situational variables like the state of the economy, et cetera, et cetera, the availability of educational resources across all that variability, you still get this incredibly impressive prediction of this single factor. And we could also point out for everyone that, you know, you might think that people have good personalities and bad personalities. In some sense, that's unidimensional. But if you do the same statistical analysis with a set of personality questions that you would conduct on a set of abstract questions, you get five factors, not one. So it isn't, it isn't necessarily the case at all that something will simplify down to a single factor, but that's profoundly the case with IQ. The other thing that is worth pointing out is that Bad as IQ tests might be, given that there's much they don't explain, they're far better than any other method we have of assessing po potential for, uh, let's say, cognitive growth and acquisition. So if you want to predict how well someone's going to do in an academic environment, then there isn't anything that even comes close to the accuracy of an IQ test. And also to the unbiased, it's also unbiased compared to all other forms of measurement. So, so... Yeah. Okay, so you learned this in 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 England, but you weren't you weren't satisfied with the expertise approach, and you so you became a master of the psychometric approach and learned that literature, yeah. but yeah. that also didn't satisfy you. Why not? Yeah, so I really and I felt this in my bones uh, just intuitively when I was in college, even sophomore year in college, I was reading. I uh, wrote the I read the book Successful Intelligence by Robert Sternberg, and I felt as though creativity wasn't the same thing as intelligence. I feel like that was this thing that I felt to be true that I um, you know I didn't know there was a whole field until I started reading um, cognitive psychology as well. I took a course in cognitive psychology my sophomore year with Anne Fay and and got to uh, the the chapter on intelligence and Stern. Briggs textbook where he talks about the the psychological literature on creativity, and that really excited me. And I um, and I felt like there was uh, there was more to the story than just IQ. And by the way, Macintosh would definitely agree with that. He he unfortunately he passed away a couple years ago, but um, you know if he were alive right now, I mean, he would definitely uh, agree completely with that. And he has in our conversations. Um, it's almost like um, people uh, import ideas on IQ researchers that they never said. You know, like no IQ researcher that I ever know. Uh, have ever known has said like that IQ is a perfect predictor of everything. <laughs> right. You know? Yeah. Quite so the contrary. They tend to be extremely conservative in their estimates of IQ's yeah. potential for prediction. Well, you're also in a strange position intellectually, a unique position in some sense, because you worked with one of the leading 
psychometric scholars who helped develop the idea of the general single factor of intelligence, IQ, essentially. But you also mm. worked with Robert Sternberg, who was one of the people in the 90s in particular, and in the 80s as well, who mounted a challenge to the idea of a unitary intelligence. I, I would say it, it was him and, and uh, uh, Howard Gardner at the Harvard School of, of Education, Faculty of Education, that started to develop theories of multiple intelligence, essentially. And so, um, mm. well, so what did you conclude as a consequence of being exposed to both of those sets of ideas? Yeah, and you're quite right. It's a really astute point. I, I just want to say they had a great affection for each other. I remember we we invited Bob, uh, as we call Robert Sternberg, Bob, over to Cambridge to give a talk at, at Cambridge once. I remember us all, all of us walking in the garden, me, Nick, and Bob, and and uh, and Bob was criticizing. I, I remember this vividly. Bob was criticizing neuroscience and saying it's so reductionistic, like it's showing us nothing about intelligence. And and Nick was we were pushing back, but I feel like there was a great affection at the core among all of us. Um, I think that what I really learned from all these perspectives is that we need to stop thinking about all this stuff in either or terms and do a lot more integration um, in our thinking about these topics, which and I'm sure we're going to talk about this when we get to the hierarchy of needs, because believe it or not, this is related, <laughs> is that we need to be we need to think of this stuff more in terms of integrated hierarchies than in terms of um, binaries or um, or di or disparate constructs that uh, are completely a contextual of each other. So. The more I got into it, the more I realized how the interesting questions were when you combine intelligence and creativity. You know, when you combine and when you start looking at the world. Um, I, so, for instance, I I, um, I published a, a paper um, with Roger Beatty, who's a real leading star in the neuroscience field, showing that both the executive attention network and the default mode network, which is more related to creativity or or imagination, when they are coupled together, you see the greatest uh, sources of creativity. So it, it doesn't make any sense to kind of view these things. As separate, but each one do make their unique contributions, if that makes sense. Okay, so let's let's go back momentarily to the Sternberg and psychometric debate. So I was yeah. really interested and, and have remained interested in measurement. Um, mm. when, when I encountered all those ideas, I was trying to predict uh, success in complex environments, academic environments like the University of Toronto and, and Harvard, and also in business environments. And I was trying to extend the prediction that was capable with IQ. And so I was scouring the literature looking for reliably measurable methods of assessing anything that would predict achievement. And then also reliable measures of achievement, which, which mm. is a separate problem. But what I found lacking with Sternberg and Gardner in particular was that I could never derive anything of, of practical measurable utility from their work. And, and I couldn't find mm. anything in it that would allow me to add to predictive validity. Now, I also at that time was studying the big five personality factors, and that became quite clear that there was something in that that was actually measurable. So to even to predict academic performance, if you use IQ, essentially, and the SAT and LSAT and all those standardized tests fall into that category, even though the makers deny that quite frequently, they do. Conscientiousness is a good additional predictor. And we looked at prediction of performance in graduate school and openness, which is the creativity dimension that we'll talk about, didn't predict at all. It was actually slightly negatively predicted with graduate, graduate school performance publications and so on. But we did find that a combination of neuropsychological tests basically assessing executive function 
could add something to IQ, maybe, depending on how you did the analysis, but conscientiousness definitely did. But I couldn't extract anything out of the multiple intelligence literature. And so, and I always thought that was a, a fatal flaw, actually, of that literature, because from a scientific perspective, and I also think from a reasonable, critical, intellectual perspective, if you can't extract out anything of measurable value, then what's the evidence? What's the evidence that you actually have something other than something conceptual? And so you must have run across the same problem when you were trying to expand out from IQ. I did. And I'll be, I'll be very blunt about this. Um, I went into the field so excited about theories of multiple intelligences. And uh, once I started studying this stuff scientifically, I became seduced by the truth. I don't know. I don't know how else to say it. Well, um, how, about, I, how about horribly impacted by the truth? That was my experience, okay. experience with IQ. It was like, oh, my God, this yeah. will go away no matter what you do. And it is yeah. solitary and it's been well measured and it's really hard to add to it. And everything else yeah. looks bad in comparison. It's it was quite a shock to me. Uh, that's the thing. So once I started um, studying this stuff with 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 Nick, you know, you you for instance, you would look at like people's attempts to measure Gardner's multiple intelligences, and in every single instance, you'd be able to still extract a G factor. Um, and there, there's no, and and I've come to the conclusion that as long as you're activating consciousness to any degree whatsoever, you're going, it's going to be G loaded. What the, the task you're doing is going to bring in working memory processes. It's going to bring in um, some other uh, like general associative learning. Was another process we introduced. Um, obviously, the field has studied associative learning, but Nick and I published a paper showing that we could adapt some of those measures um, that have been used in the behavioralist literature, because Nicholas is uh, most well-known for his behavioral research. Um, we were able to adapt some of these associative learning measures to predict G very uh, just as well as working memory, for instance. So, we found that there's, there are these general cognitive mechanisms that won't go away. Like, you could have whatever, whatever theory you want to propose of multiple intelligences, these general cognitive mechanisms you can't sweep them under the rug. Right. So if you laid out a, a number of hypothetical general or multiple intelligence measures and they measured anything that had to do with abstraction and you mm. averaged across them, what you'd ex- essentially get is a proxy for IQ if you got anything at all. And what really, what really mm. stunned me was that we couldn't add anything additional to that. Even we added a huge battery of neuropsychological tests derived from the neuropsych literature, not from the psychometric literature. It was all clinical tests, mostly developed at the Montreal Neurological Institute. We had a, ho- a large battery and computerized them and added them to the IQ uh, measures that we had. If you used IQ and the neuropsych measures separately in an equation, they would both contribute. But if you did a factor analysis and extracted out one factor, which would essentially be the average, then that factor was the best predictor. So I could never find out from my own research whether we had just expanded the definition of IQ slightly (laughs) in terms of its predictive validity or whether the neuropsychologists were onto something. But it was striking to me that even these tests derived from a purely clinical literature that wasn't influenced by the psychometric tradition and was actually opposed to it, it still ended up measuring exactly the same thing. I always told my students, and you tell me what you think about this, that it was forbidden in my lab to study anything without also adding an IQ measure. because As a covariate, it, at least. As a yeah. covariate, because it, it seemed, yeah. and I also think the same thing about big five personality, for, for whatever mm. that's worth, is like, we know 
that IQ exists. It exists, or at least as much as anything social scientists have ever discovered exists. So if you're studying any complex phenomena, the first thing you should do is get what you already know out of the way. And that made research in my lab much more difficult because we'd get results from some measure and then that would be hypothetically be publishable. But then as soon as we added the IQ measures and the personality measures, it would almost always kill. Like we looked at values as a predictor, for example, of academic achievement. Um, and there's well-developed values literature, but yeah. we could kill that instantly with IQ and, and personality. And I can't get, I don't understand why the field won't accept that. Well, I'll give you an analogy. It's it's almost it, it's I think it's analogous to the fact that uh, all these uh, environmental determinants of X papers uh, don't never use genes as a covariate. You know, it's like, well, things change once once you start to include genes as a covariate, then you find some of these effects drop away. And that's it, it, interesting. It's like we don't even want to know the truth, <laughs> you know, mm. it's in, in, in certain, certain, certain circumstances. Well, you know, I've thought about that, too. It's not surprising that people don't want to know the truth about IQ because it's it's quite nasty. I mean, there are huge differences between people in their intrinsic ability to learn. And that has me- walloping economic and social consequences. And so there's there's a yeah. bitterness in that that's I mean, I think we still have to address it and take it seriously. But, you know, so for me, it's like IQ does the liberal and the conservative political uh, perspectives incredible damage because the conservatives are likely to say, well, there's a job for everyone if they just get up and, and you know, get at it. And the liberals like to say, well, everybody can be trained to do everything. And both of those are wrong because there's a there's a large number of people who are not who have enough trouble with abstraction that finding a productive job in a complex society has become extraordinarily difficult mm. and that's a huge problem and and we have no idea what to do with it we won't even look at it well, um, something I would like to bring in this discussion, if that's okay, is some of the limits of IQ tests, especially with neurodiverse people. Because I found in some of my own research, I, I studied something called twice exceptionality. Actually, I edited a book called Twice Exceptionality, um, supporting bright and uh, creative students with learning disabilities. Sometimes mm-hmm. they're intelligent, they're like they're they're very intelligent, but sometimes because of their executive function dysfunctions, like with ADHD individuals, it doesn't show up in an IQ test. So I do want to still leave that window open for us to. What's Absolutely yeah. fair enough. Look, yeah. there, there's as and as we already pointed out, IQ is only yeah. covering 25% of the relative relevant territory. And the tests yeah. are by no means perfect. And there are people who are measured whose capacity is measured improperly yeah. with an IQ estimate. No doubt about that. So and 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 other factors play an important role, like conscientiousness, but it's only about yeah. at least as far as we can measure it. And we can only really measure it still with self-report or other report personality tests. It adds about, it's only about a third as powerful, if that, of a, as IQ. This is how I put it. I say, look, it's really hard to get an extremely high IQ score by accident. But there's many reasons why perhaps someone bombed an IQ test that uh, could have to do with uh, error variance and other factors. Right. But it's very hard. Like if you get 160 IQ genuinely and honestly, if like you didn't cheat, it's hard to like just accidentally stumble into the, right. those Absol- right answers. Absolutely. Yeah, well, that's a good way of looking at it. That Yeah, that, that, that it's the low scores that contain the errors. Mm. Yeah, and yeah. fair enough. And that should be mm. attended to, not least because we don't ever want to deny anybody with potential the possibility of developing that and sharing it with everyone else. But, you know, so many universities now are moving away from the SATs, let's say. And, and, 
and because they because of their perceived and actual shortcomings. But my problem with that is that whatever they're replaced with is likely to be way worse on virtually every imaginable dimension. So we'll see how that all plays out. Mm-hmm. So, okay, so uh, yeah. sorry, go ahead. Well, another reason why the topic is radioactive, of course, is because every time you talk about uh, IQ differences, people, their, their, their head immediately goes to group differences. Um, and we're, I just want to clarify, we're talking about individual differences. That's, well, that's what we've talked about so far. Do you know what I mean? Yep. And you can't automatically extrapolate. You know, even when I use the word genes, people are scared of the word genes. You know, like, like it, that should be the most uncontroversial thing in the world. The fact that individual to individual, our genes play some influence. We don't, we don't want an environmentally deterministic world, that would be horrible. <laughs> we don't want to, you know what I mean? People don't really think that through, you know? Um, so I just wanted to clarify, we're talking about this, you know, individual to individual level. We're not talking, we're not extrapolating this um, to group differences. Well, we're also talking about it at a, at a comparative level. It's like, well, the IQ testing process is imperfect, right? Mm. Well, compared to what? Like, you have to come up with a better alternative. You can't just say this isn't good enough. It's like, compared to what? We can't, we could assign people to universities randomly. And like, like so, uh, and you could do this. Imagine that your, your first year students, anybody could attend first year classes. And then you used first year grades to decide who got to continue. You could see that you could make a coherent social policy based on that. That would give everyone a shot. And then it would allow those who succeeded in the actual enterprise to progress. Now, it'd be very expensive in the first year, but that might be beneficial anyways to expose everyone to that kind of education. But you can't do that and continue up to the higher stratospheres of intellectual endeavor because the people who pursue that have to be able to do it. So, well, so we're stuck with it, but we won't have a serious discussion of it. And it's really, it's yeah. really unfortunate. I would say with one caveat, you know, we found in our own paper that IQ was was entirely uncorrelated with artistic creative achievement. And I, I've always been kind of interested what to do with that, because um, uh, it just seems like openness to experience and some of these other uh, cognitions. Like I studied implicit learning and I found that was correlated with artistic uh, achievement and late and right. reduced latent inhibition. The, the, the great right. work you did with Shelley Carson, um, I, I replicated some of that. So I, I think there's more to the story if we, you know, if we look at uh, what what field are we trying to predict? Yeah, well, the know? openness dimension is of extreme interest and and mm. and because there is something to the personality trait openness that seems to be related, as you pointed out, to creative achievement, but also to to not so not even so necessarily so much artistic achievement, but even to enterprise achievement, like mm. entrepreneurial ability. We've found that I never published; I used it privately. Um, we found a pretty pronounced relationship between openness to experience and entrepreneurial ability, practical entrepreneurial mm. ability, and as as you well know. Uh, that seems to have that openness seems to have something to do with perceptual differences. Um, so open people are they have they seem to have a broader perceptual range, something like that. And they're they're more emotionally impacted by their perceptions too. They're more likely to experience awe. They're more likely yeah. to be compelled and gripped by ideas. They're more likely to be curious. Mm-hmm. They're more likely to engage in associative thinking. So one concept will remind them of a range of distantly related concepts more than someone who's a more constrained thinker. They're more likely to have insight experiences. And and there is something to that that's not purely reducible to IQ because you can be you can have a high IQ and be non-creative. It's, it's less likely, but 
Not only that, but like, and this this starting to get into the transcend stuff. When you said the word all, A W E, then then that starts to get into my newer research because you know I can look, I can I could pop up a data set right now and show you that IQ is correlated zero with the extent to which you're going to experience all in your daily life. But openness to experience is very strongly correlated with that. Right. And so, what do you make of that? What What do you think? What do you think about? Hmm. Oh, I mean, open. We've had professional exchanges uh, on this topic, but I haven't talked to you for years, so. Where's your thinking gone with re- in relationship to openness to experience? And you know it can be transformed by psilocybin mushroom experiences, right? Ro- Griffiths yeah. showed that. One standard deviation increase in openness one year later after one mystical experience. Stunning. Some t- profound neurological transformation. And Catherine McLean as well has has showed that uh, very large effects. Um, I'm I'm very very interested in the linkage between openness to experience and uh, self transcendent experiences. Um, it does seem like certain personality uh, structures are more likely to uh, experience absorption. So I think the major link there, and probably our bridge here, is is the is the the under discussed topic uh, uh, in 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 the public of because people talk about flow, but telogen's absorption construct is not the same thing as as Mihai Chiksent Mihai's flow construct. And I think that when we talk about openness to experience, I think it is quite linked to these altered states of consciousness and susceptibility um, to even hypnotizability, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, this kind of willingness to um, take a take a a, um, to dip your toe into the sea of madness, I would say. Do you you suppose so? So do you suppose that the capacity to embody multiple personalities in some sense is the key aspect Mm. to to openness, you know, because we're incredible mimics. And I want to talk to you about the relationship between mimicry and awe, because I think Mm. awe is the manifestation of the instinct to mimic. But I've watched Mm. creative people play music, for example. I remember one guitarist I was watching, and he was jamming, and he was very expert at it. And it was unbelievably interesting to watch and listen to him at the same time, because you could see one second, he'd be like a black female gospel singer from the 1930s. And the next second, he'd be like, uh, Morrison from the Doors, and you could see all these musical influences that that had inhabited him, and he was playing with them constantly, and it was like watching a shapeshifter, and mm. and you know our capacity for abstract into abstraction means that we can think up abstractions, which are representations of ourselves in some sense, and then assess their perceptions and their actions before we implement them, and I, I wonder if open people are are able to be more people in some sense because i've also known i think so you think you think, I think there's something i think there's something that. i think there's i actually tested this hypothesis um in the sense i looked to see whether or not people who were scored higher in open experience were more likely to have unreliability in their big five character structure over oh, you time did. oh that's yeah and i found yeah, they did you did they you did. did you found that yeah. okay yeah. so that means yeah. from, from moment to moment their personality and over what span of time? Well, over from month to month. I, di- I didn't do like sam- like experience sampling, which would be, that'd be really cool. But just over a period of a couple months, for instance. Okay, so just to clarify yeah. that, personality, like IQ, personality is quite stable across time. What you see across time is that 
people maintain their personality structures, but they become more agreeable, less neurotic, so less characterized by negative emotion, and more conscientious as they age. So those all mm. seem like good things, uh, hypothetically. Um, but your point is that if you take people who are high in openness to experience, which is this creativity dimension, their personalities are less stable across time. I also yeah. wonder if that accounts to some degree for the oft remarked upon hypothetical association between creativity and instability. Because imagine you're high in openness and you're high in neuroticism. I mean, that's a problem because you have that personality variability that's an intrinsic part of you, but in some ways that's going to be harder on you because that variability is going to make things more unpredictable. I've had, I've seen Absolutely. open people have a hard time catalyzing a single identity. And so that can be hard Absolutely. on them. I, this is I, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying, and and I think that there, there's some really cool uh, things when you actually look at the interaction effects. You know, like that's what's really cool. You know, um, especially what I what I guess I would call paradoxical traits. You know, like uh, you know because you look at the general correlational structure, but then what what if a person you know really bucks those general correlational structure trends? What's the word for that? I've been trying to come up with like a term for that. You know, <laughs> like you know most people who are conscientiousness or are conscientious. I guess, uh, tend to be what? Less what? Uh, uh, in the general population. Well, probably less neurotic. But what if you're high neurotic and you're high conscientious? That's just one example. Right, right. But there are lots of these other kinds of paradoxical traits that I think are worth studying in more depth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So those would be singular mm -hmm. people in some sense. So, yeah. right, right. So high orderly, high openness would be an example of that too. What is right. that? Yeah. Right. For instance, me, me, me. I, I think I that's score Hitler. <laughs> oh, Hitler oh no, was I was very gonna say orderly and very open. <laughs> I wasn't going to say I'm 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 not those traits, but but here's something yep. I am that's paradoxical, and I and, and maybe you are too. I don't know. I'd like to hear that. I score very high in um, autistic like trait scales, but I also score very high in schizotypy like scales. So that's something that in the general population, those are very strongly negatively correlated with each other. But how in the world am I high in both those things? I think you might be high in both those things too. Mm, do you think that's mediated by openness? Maybe, maybe that's what it all comes down to. Yeah, is that, that that'd be my uh, guess. So, so I wonder, like I used to see my kid come home, my son, when, when he was young, he'd come home after playing with kids and he would be inhabited by one of the kids' personalities. And often it was a bratty child. And so he'd come home with this whole bag of tricks. And it wasn't just one thing that he would experiment with. It was like he'd picked up the whole pattern of behavior from that play experience. And then he'd come home and try out his new tricks. And I wonder, has anybody ever assessed to see if open people are better or faster mimics? Because absorption, imagine, mm. imagine two things, okay? So imagine, first of all, that you have this capacity for awe. And so what that does, you meet someone who's very impressive. And so there's an experience of awe that goes along with that. Now, you should mimic someone who's impressive because if your judgment of their impressiveness is accurate, then you could be more impressive if you were more like them. So imagine that there's a, an instinct towards awe-inspired imitation. Okay, now if you were also very high in absorption, you would get into that. And, and I think that's probably what's happening to open people in movies because they sink really deeply into the movies. They're entranced by them or the fictional universe. And so they can become possessed by alternative personalities. Yes. And then, and that and of course, that's what we want in actors, obviously, right? We want people who are possessed by alternative personalities to act them out for us. And there's no reason, because you see, one of the things psychologists don't study enough, as far as I'm concerned, is imitation. Mm. It's so fundamental. Well, 
Well, here's a here's a maybe a far out link. Do you think people who are high in openness are more likely to be ideologically possessed? Have you ever made that linkage? I mean, I don't know if there is something interesting there, but there might be. Um, to the extent to which um, people who are higher in openness um, tend to be more likely to um, have contagion of other people's emotions and ideas right, and right, maybe right. have – I mean, could that be I guess possible? I, well, I guess I'd, I'd think two things about that. The, the, the if you're open, you're more easily possessed line of reasoning would suggest that. But the if you're open, you're likely to blow through arbitrary cognitive barriers would act negatively right. towards that. So maybe maybe what you might see is that who the hell knows that <laughs> high openness teenagers are likely to be ideologically possessed, but to to not be later. Hmm. Right. So maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the mechanism would lead them to that in the in the early development, but it would lead them out of that as they matured. Who and knows? moderator, and maybe IQ is a moderator of all of this. Maybe <laughs> it's going, well, going but, full circle. <laughs> yeah, well, that's a tough one too, because you you know, it, it it I I suspect that I would suspect again that in adolescence, higher hmm. IQ would would be a predictor of more ideological possession, because hmm. because well, imagine that you you have to be relatively smart to be interested in political issues political mm -hmm. abstractions so there's it's a precondition and then when you first start being interested well you're not going to be very sophisticated so an ideology is likely what you're going to adopt well maybe it's the intellect facet you know cuz openness to experience uh, you're pioneer, you pioneered this work which i carried forward in my graduate work um there's an important distinction uh, of at the aspect level between intellectual curiosity and um openness to experience more having to do with the actual experiential aspect of it and so maybe the intellectual curiosity part is a modifier there even more so than iq right who knows right well i've i yeah. i mean all we've found so far in our investigations of openness and political view is that it's a definitely, and, and it isn't only our lab, obviously, and we didn't originate this idea for that matter. Um, mm. Openness is definitely a predictor of liberal and left-leaning political proclivity. Mm. That's that's clear. And, mm. and that goes along with a comparative interest in fiction, say, versus nonfiction. And it's definitely temperamental. And I've been thinking, tell me what you think about this. So you know that openness and conscientiousness are the best two predictors of political belief. Okay, so then you might ask, and this goes along with your interest in interactions, is why the hell is it openness and conscientiousness? Relatively uncorrelated traits, you know, why isn't it openness and neuroticism or, 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 mm. or, or extroversion and agreeableness? Why those two? Why political? And so I've been thinking, um, I think it has to do with borders. And I've been influenced in my thinking by all the new literature on the relationship between contagious disease and political belief. So there's a huge literature. This is the only literature I've ever seen that has effect sizes approximating those of IQ. So if you mm. measure the prevalence of infectious disease at the city, state, provincial, or country level, you find that there's a walloping correlation with authoritarian attitudes like 0.7. It's ridiculous. It's massive. And there's some association there with disgust sensitivity, although that hasn't been completely pulled out yet. So, so imagine this. Is imagine that the open types, so the liberal types, they want the free flow of information. 
So they don't like barriers. They don't like borders between anything. They don't like borders between concepts. They don't like borders between genders. They don't like borders because it interferes with the free flow of information. But the cost of the free flow, borderless free flow, is contamination. Mm. And so, and they're both right. You open the borders. Well, look what happened last year. International, we're an international society, so we have an international pandemic. So you open up the doors to information flow. You also open up the doors to contamination. And I would say that's true biologically and ideationally as well. So the, the analogy holds. So that's why those two things combine to determine political belief, because political belief is about borders fundamentally. But the one thing I don't understand about that is that neuroticism is pretty strongly correlated with disgust sensitivity or even the kind of thing you're referring to. So why is why is neuroticism not what you know, because you said openness. Look, we and thought content. we yeah. kind of thought we kind of thought and, and some of my theoretical work led me to presume that more conservative types or more ideologically possessed types, it wasn't clear which, would be more neurotic, but they're not. Like, if anything, conservatives are less neurotic than liberals at a trait level. And it's a complex literature because there is some literature showing that conservatives are more sensitive under some conditions to some kinds of negative emotion. You know, and then you can generate up a, a defense theory of conservative ideology. But it doesn't look to me like it's fear related because it doesn't manifest itself in neuroticism at all. And it should if that theory was correct. There's something about disgust that's crucial that, that has been understudied so far, but that's changing. It, I think that's super interesting. And I've also been interested in the uh, at the aspect level analysis of these things. So um, the overall agreeableness to me is, is not a, a player. But once you look at the aspect level, you find that they diverge. Politeness is higher among uh, conservatives and, um, co and compassion is higher among um, liberals. I should yeah. just point out for everyone that's listening is that work done in my lab by Colin DeYoung, um, mm. particularly, we showed that you could break the big five down into 10 sub aspects, we called them. So you get some additional predictive utility sometimes if you use the more differentiated scales. And we did investigate, as, as Dr. Kaufman just mentioned, we did investigate the effects of that on political belief. And we did find, as you said, that conservatives are more polite and that liberals are more um, uh, empathetic or more agreeable. Mm -hmm. And, and, we don't know what to make of that, partly because we don't really understand politeness exactly. It, it has something to do with, it's something related to deference to authority, politeness. Um, but it manifests, like one Maybe of the best- Maybe even just respect, respect for authority, it seems a little bit different than deference. It could could be but, respect, sure, yeah, sure. Yeah. And But but then you it's complicated because conscientiousness- is also associated, I would say, to some degree with respect for authority, right? Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. what's the difference? What is politeness adding that conscientiousness doesn't already cover? Mm, so a great we question. Certainly, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it, 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 well, I was really excited by the political research, uh, partly that was done in my lab, but also elsewhere, because it's really, it's quite revolutionary, I think, to think mm. through the implications of the fact that your political viewpoints are determined by your by your temperament. And, and because what it means is, is that your biology, in large part, has provided you with a filter for the facts, right? So we like to think, well, you derive your rational conclusions from the set of facts that you're exposed to. But 
unfortunately, you have to choose the facts because there's just too many of them. And so temperament is playing a major role in determining what you expose yourself to. We found that with fiction preference, for example, is like open people are much more likely to read fiction and fiction of certain mm -hmm. sorts. And so the differences start with the information gathering process itself. Is that what the work with Mar? Yeah. Was that? Yeah, I love that. I love that work so much, by the way. We had a hell of a time getting that stuff published. Although it's, it, 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 it's you crazy. You never know like, eh, when you publish what's <laughs> going to be published and what's going yeah. to have an impact. You certainly can't predict it. But yes, yeah. that, that all worked out quite well. So, okay. Well, so back to, let, let's go back to the, if you don't mind, unless you want to sure. take this somewhere else. Let's go yeah. back to the humanism issue. Okay. Let's which is it. central to your new book. So you got, it, you it. got interested in what, what was it about the humanist define it? And then tell me what it was that captured your attention. So it was in particular, it was humanistic psychology. And I actually distinguish that from the humanism movement that maybe, you you know, like that that's more a philosophical movement. You know, um, the humanistic psychology movement was in the 50s and 60s, um, a, a cadet of psychologists who were unconvinced that we were telling the full story about uh, humanity and, and humans through the Freud approach or the behaviorism approach. They felt like we were neglecting higher principles. Um, they felt like we were neglecting um, the investigation of the whole person as a system. Right. Um, Freud, maybe Freud, they focused, Freud focused a lot as an MD on psychopathology, on mental illness. Exactly. And the behaviorists took everything that was related to consciousness and, and subjective experience completely off the table. And, and we should point Absolutely. out that that had utility. Both those movements had tremendous utility. But there was this lacuna, let's say, that the existentialists addressed in the 50s. The existential psychologists, yeah. and then the humanists in the 60s. By the way, I loved your lecture uh, about Carl Rogers and, and the phenomenology approach. So that was that was really cool. I liked that. Um, yeah. So th in a big way, you know, there was still a respect for those prior approaches. They weren't saying they were they were complete shit. You know, yeah. like Abraham Maslow did really rigorous, great work in grad school on rats. You know, you you're looking at reaction time tasks, but he got bored with it, and he felt that there was more to the story of humanity. So I guess what really captured my interest is this notion of studying the whole system, um, the whole person, and how all the parts work together. Um, I think that we both agree in our philosophy that nothing is actually objective or absolutely good or bad. No, no, no psychological trait. It's, it depends how it's integrated into the system. You know, this is why I don't, I I'm critical of the distinction between positive and negative emotions. Like we can absolutely classify which emotions are positive and absolutely classify which ones are negative as opposed to just we have comfortable emotions. You have uncomfortable emotions. I mean, it's, you can have the experience, but then we put the label on top of the experience. Um, you, you've, you've said, uh, you've had some good lectures about the potential benefits of uh, integrating your anger or um, or integrating I mean anything you integrate in a healthy way into the whole system um, can be beneficial you, you know, know it, that's it has the, the crucial potential. issue there right yeah. it's the crucial yeah. issue that the existentialists and the human humanists and Jung as well as far as I'm concerned and Jung. concentrated yeah. on which is well when you're talking about integration let's say mm. and and so the psychoanalyst a psychoanalytic approach, even Freudian approach would be to uncover something repressed and to bring it into the whole personality. Well, what exactly do you mean by the whole personality? And what do you mean by integrated? And so the humanists, mm. for me, the, the humanists were the entry point to the answer to that question. And, Absolutely. And so 
so okay so so you're you're updating maslow with your with this new book and and so walk us in through one, what you were in thinking. one way i'm updating maslow but in another way i'm actually setting the record straight about maslow because there's so many misconceptions of, and and things he never even said so first of all he never drew a pyramid there, there there's in none of his papers did he ever draw a pyramid um to represent his hierarchy of needs um he didn't even really think of it in that way in fact i was talking to someone who knew him personally and there's a story where he was having lunch with him and he saw on the dollar bill or, so, or i think it's the dollar bill where there's a pyramid and he looked at me he said i hate that fucking pyramid (laughs) so so look he didn't he didn't like that's not how he thought about it he actually says in his writings he said i would like to present my integrated hierarchy of uh human needs and he he was very clear to call it integrated um he he said it's it's every single need rests very carefully upon the lower need but just because life is not like a video game where you reach one level of needs and then like some voice from above is like congrats you've unlocked the next level and then you never go back to the prior level um integration fundamentally means that every single higher need depends on the lower need that came before. It depends on it in a very important way that gets missed by the way it's often represented in um, modern, even psychology textbooks. Like we, I really think we need to update the psychology textbooks about this. Yeah, well, lots of great thinkers are poorly represented um, by their mm. what, low order, their low resolution representation. I mean, <laughs> Piaget, Jean Piaget, the developmental psychologist who's basically taught as a stage theorist, which was a tiny fraction of what he did, and certainly not the most important thing, he was fundamentally interested in reconciling the distinction between religion and science. And I never heard hide nor hair of that till I started reading Piaget, well, the translations, I couldn't read it in the French original. So, you know, the ideas of creative geniuses are filtered through the, through lesser minds when they're taught and, and much of what's complex and interesting disappears and what's simplified is what remains say la vie um so do you want to walk us through a bit the theory and then what you've done with it and what what it's done for you and what you think it can do for other people absolutely and um i'll also bring in how some of your own work influenced it so okay so the hierarchy of needs um as as mazo originally proposes that we have a hierarchy of prepotency and that's the word he used prepotency um various motivations that given certain um deprivations um cause our entire consciousness to be um very narrowed down to those defi- to to paying attention to those things so if we if we severely lack food our consciousness um sees everything as as a potential source of food if we severely um, are deficient f- with our um, with our connections and belonging um, he says we have we show a very kind of needing love so everyone looks like um, everyone's utility value is is to satisfy this hole in ourselves of of connection of our loneliness um, same with self-esteem needs if we're severely deprived of any opportunities for mastery or esteem from others we become very needy and and demand respect but he argued that the the deprivation realm of human existence can be distinguished from the being realm of human existence. He said, once we can, it, it's like putting on a clear, clear uh, set of glasses for the first time when you've, when you've only been seeing very, um, very uh, unclear uh, glasses. Um, and when you put on the clear glasses and you enter the being realm or the growth realm of human existence, you no longer um, demand for the world to, 
conform to your deprivations, you start to see the world on its own terms. You start to see the world, um, and you and even, dare I say, admire, and this is where transcendence starts to come into play, um, admire and love people for who they are independently of you, independently of, of their utility value for your own deprivations. So to me, I thought that was the most important distinction in Maslow's theory that had been lost. Okay, so let, let me ask you a question there. Yeah. So there's two distinctions that are being made, and they seem to be conflated to some degree in Maslow, mm -hmm. but maybe that's a misunderstanding on my part. There's an implication, at least, that the, the higher, uh, the more transcendent values or perceptions make themselves manifest once the deprivation states have been taken care of. That's mm. sort of the high, but then, but there's a conceptual distinction that's equally important, which is that there are deprivation motivated uh, perceptions, motivations and actions, but there's another class as well, and those should be separated. And I have more trouble with the first presumption than the second, because, well, when, when I was think, thinking through Maslow, for example, in, in the courses I've taught on ex existentialism and humanism, um, hmm. Solzhenitsyn talked, who's a great existential psychologist, as far as I'm concerned, hmm. talked about people who were in the prison camps in Russia, who were starving and deprived in multiple different ways. And Frankel did the same thing with regards to the concentration camps in, in Nazi Germany. And he describes in painful story after story, people turning to what Maslow would consider being needs in the midst of severe deprivation and finding sustenance and profound sustenance there. So he talked, for example, about a group of intellectuals who were starving to death in a work camp who had a weekly seminar where they discussed their specific academic um, specializations. And, you know, it shrunk over time as each of them died of malnutrition. But and and Solzhenitsyn produces a very powerful critique of the idea that the being realm, let's say, in Maslow's terms, can only be accessed once the deprivation realm has been taken care of. And well, well, the, I found I that an interesting that. Ar ar argument, to say the least. And it's it's very interesting, but I would modify and say. Um, at least, you know, this, and this, this is where maybe what Maslow said and what Scott Barry Kaufman is saying might start to diverge, because um, what I try to argue in this book is that it's all about the um, how how those deprivations are integrated, not the fact that they're gone. Um, so, for instance, in, in my chapter on purpose, I cover what I call the Hitler problem. And that's the, the you know, the, the very, I think, a reasonable question. Did Hitler have a higher purpose? You know, and, you know, and what would that even mean in the in the whole hierarchy of needs model, considering that I put purpose as a higher need in the growth realm? You know, or am I saying that Hitler entered the being the growth realm? And the way I resolved that is that I argued that, you know, some of the most um, pro-social or, um, or most uh, uh, positive aspects of uh, manifestations of the higher need of purpose occur when one's sufferings um, are 
integrated into uh, one's higher order structure, but it's it's not the only thing that's driving their whole system. So I just really do like viewing this from a whole system perspective because um, once you can integrate kind of this um, this suffering you had and this the anger you have for the suffering, but you integrate that with this need for exploration, as I talk about, as a growth need, as well as um, be love, which is uh, Maslow called it be love, love for the just like humanitarian sort of concern, or as um, Alfred Adler called it, Geschubwanda uh, Freud. I can never pronounce the word, but you know, social interest. If once we have a higher level integration of all these things, I think you get something much better as um, the sum of the parts than any of the parts themselves. Does that make sense? Yes. Well, and well, let's we and we we can also walk walk through this argument in some more detail. I mean, it it's obviously the case that deprivation can reach a point where nothing but the deprivation is salient. Right. I mean, if you're in enough pain, for example, if you're hungry enough, et cetera, et cetera. So there's limit conditions that that, that make up these deprivation states that skew everything. Um, mm. If you're dying of thirst, for example, you're not going to, in all likelihood, engage in a philosophical conversation, right? So at some point, deprivation takes the reins completely. But then there's that one of the dangers in in Maslow's approach, as far as I was concerned, and this is partly why the writings of Theodore Dalrymple have been so interesting to me, because Dalrymple talks, he worked a lot in really in the, what would you say, the disp he worked a lot among the dispossessed class in inner city, uh, British cities, in the, in, in the innermost confines of, of British cities. And he described a culture of, of poverty that characterized the the dispossessed. And they weren't poor so much if you thought about poverty in terms of absolute deprivation. So he had worked in Africa as well among people who were by any reasonable standard much more materially deprived than the members of the population he was addressing in psychiatric practice. But he, his fundamental diagnosis was that the multi-generational poverty cycle, violence, alcoholism, drug abuse, antisocial behavior that he saw was a consequence of a profound philosophical disequilibrium that was the primary agent that was driving all this rather than something that could be addressed, for example, by attending, by social attention being paid, say, to um, you know, like a guaranteed basic income or something like that. And so there are, I mean, getting this straight is really of crucial importance and it is really complicated. So, and Maslow always felt to me, look, I learned a lot from the humanists and I would say they were an entry point to me mm. into the domain of practical philosophical slash religious thinking. The humanists offered within the field of psychology, spirituality for people for atheists. That's what it looked like to me. And and mm -hmm. I'm not denigrating that. I, I say that with all due respect. And they tr sure. they did in introduce spirituality, let's say, back into this into the scientific community among psychologists. So th that was extremely attractive to me. And well, let me tell you how I tested my model uh, empirically because okay. I published a paper um, where I attempted to integrate um, this theory into modern day personality psychology. And this is where you, you come in, uh, quite frankly, and, and your own ideas and work. 
So I had a um, hypothesis, um, which Colin thought was a good hypothesis, and that I should run with it, that um, the deprivation and and uh, grow and being realm that Maslow talked about would map on to stability and plasticity in the Big Five. That that these two higher hmm. order factors of the big and and I and I found that to be the case. I actually developed hmm. and and validated a psychometric scale of all the self actualization characteristics that Maslow wrote about, and I, I I found that I could validate ten out of the seventeen that he mentioned, and that the ten were just um, really strongly positively correlated with uh with plasticity. And, okay, so uh, let's take yeah. that apart for a sec for yeah. everyone. So work done in my lab again by Colin DeYoung. And other people had looked at two factor solutions too, but um, we showed that agreeableness, neuroticism, and conscientiousness, neuroticism reversed, and conscientiousness together seemed to make a super factor. So they were somewhat correlated. And so did extroversion and openness. And Colin, in particular, has gone off and developed all of that into a theory with neuroscientific uh, underpinnings. And um, he started doing that. In, at the University of Toronto has continued for the last, it's got to be near 20 years. And so we found stability, we called the super factor stability and plasticity for a variety of reasons. But, and so you just said that you mapped stability onto the deprivation realm and, and, yeah. and, and plasticity into the being realm, being, something being like. realm, and mm-hmm. I think that um, that's how that's my modern day flavor on this, like integrating it with personality psychology. Because at the at the mm-hmm. end of the day, I'm I'm really an individual difference. That's my focus is individual differences, mm-hmm. cognitive science, and personality. And I think that the um, optimal and what I argued in this paper is that the optimal cybernetic system is one that has a deep integration of both stability and plasticity. Right. So it really it really isn't an either or question. It's a matter of do you have the skills that allow you to resist distractions against your higher order goals? And do you have the flexibility to change course when it's no longer um, serving those higher order goals? And and that, that's how I try to integrate Maslow's theory with modern day uh, cybernetic and personality theory. So I've been, you tell me what you think about this. I've been working on the presupposition that that balance, is it, manifests itself as something that's analogous to Csikszentmihalyi's flow, although I think it's more like it's it's act if it's active engagement and immersement. You experience that when, well, when you're having a good conversation, let's say, and you're not attending to anything but the ideas that are being bandied back and forth. You're not aware of the broader context. You're not aware of the flow of time. You're focused and engaged and interested in what's happening. And that happens as far as i'm concerned when maximal when optimal information flow has been established mm-hmm. so you you want to maintain the integrity of your current um perceptual frameworks essentially your current interpretive frameworks you don't want them to fall apart but because they're limited because you're limited they have to continually transform at some rate and expand so as you be become more competent and as the world changes around you. So it seems to me that the instinct of meaning is the manifestation of an internal signal that you've optimized information flow for your particular nervous system. So you're not getting more information than you can stand. So it's not knocking you into uncertainty related anxiety, but you are incorporating information at a rate that's optimal with regards to your continued adaptation and growth. Well, I love that. 
I absolutely so, love that. Well, yeah, I think yeah. that manifests itself as the sense of meaning, and I think that's what music produces. It's an anal mm. when you ex when you listen to music and you're deeply engaged, you get an analog of that, mm. and 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 it's like a model. It's like this is what your life could be like. This musical beauty, if you were in the right place at the right time all the time, which is what you should 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 could strive to attain. I, and there's something that there's something that never runs out about that idea. I would love that, and just add: um, is it worth distinguishing between the kind of meaning that is pre-wired, uh, you know, programmed through the course of human evolution that are universal uh, forms of meaning that all of us would uh, agree give us meaning, versus um, individualistic uh, forms of meaning that maybe touch more of our unique traits and well, motivations. Well, I, I would say that's yeah. probably a matter of level of integration, which is that mm. the more universal the trait, the the meaning experience is, the more it's related to an emergent integration. Hmm. So, so you know, it, I like that. as you as you already pointed out, we all differ in our temperaments and quite substantively. And so, there are going to be things that we find particularly interesting that other people won't find interesting. Um, that might determine something like the choice of our careers. It's not trivial these differences there, but but as you integrate, it, it makes sense that as you integrate, the thing that's integrated becomes more similar across diverse places. I mean, how could it be otherwise? And that's where I think you get into the realm of universal human values. And I think they are, they're emergent properties of reciprocal games, something like that. And so let me, let me tell you something interesting. You tell me what you think about this. So, you know, I've been very, uh, what would you say, opposed to the idea that the typical hierarchical social structure is based on power. You know, there's an there's a political argument going on everywhere now. And at the extremes, the claim is something like, well, hierarchical, the, the hierarchical structures that characterize the West, that characterize capitalism, or maybe that just characterize the West in general, are um, based on power. Okay, so first, I talked to the... Uh, Richard Trombley this week, who's one of the world's leading authority on the development of aggression in human beings. Mm. Okay, so what he showed quite clearly is that aggression is there right at the beginning. So it's one of these built-in motivational systems that you already talked about. The most aggressive age is two. If you group two-year-olds together, the, the probability of kicking, hitting, biting, and stealing is higher than it is if you group any other age together. And that declines precipitously with socialization. Okay, so the general trend is from aggression to, to less aggression. And then you can differentiate the aggressive kids into three groups, the, the, the two-year-olds into three groups. Those who are never aggressive, even at two, 30% of the human population. Those who are aggressive sporadically, 50%, and 17% who are chronically aggressive. It's from that category if those kids aren't socialized into peace over the course of their developmental history, most particularly by the age of four, they're the long-term permanent offenders. Okay, so, but what's interesting about this and crucial, I believe, is that the developmental trend across aggression categories is for less aggression. Aggression isn't a, and therefore power, is not a stable strategy for negotiating success in human hierarchies. 
And it's more like, it's more something like reciprocity. It's, and we need to recognize that because it really is the case that you're much more likely to be successful if you're productive and reciprocal. And I think that's an emergent that emerges out of hierarchical organization. And I think it's the same across cultures, you know, with variation, but that's a universal human truth. And I think we're adapted to it. And we recognize that in others when we see it. And that produces awe when we really see it. That person's hyperproductive. They're hypergenerous. I want to be like that person. So yeah, competent and relational, would those be synonyms for those two words yeah, as well? Yeah, that, yes, okay. absolutely. It's, it's competent and generous. Yeah, what a combination. Yeah. And, you know, the thing about generosity is that it allows competent people to store the fruits of their labor. Right? I mean, if, if you and I collaborate and I'm generous in our collaboration, then you're going to collaborate with me again, maybe sometime down the road when I really need it and vice mm. versa. You know, when I was struck, I talked to Jocko Willink two weeks ago, and Jocko's this like hypermasculine warrior type of character. You know, he's Navy mm-hmm. SEAL and very intimidating physically and psychologically. And he told me in the Naval SEAL training, for example, the, the primary dictum is you have your buddy's back. It isn't biggest, meanest ape wins. And that doesn't even work for chimpanzees, as Franz de Waal has shown. So there is an ethic, man. And one of the things I liked about the humanists and about your book is that, you know, you're pointing out that there is this integrative tendency that that is associated with values and that there's something universal about it. It's like, yeah, 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 definitely. Absolutely. And, and if I may go into a territory that may seem seem completely unrelated, but I don't think it is. I wrote a book called Mating Intelligence Unleashed that I co-authored with uh, an evolutionary psychologist, Glenn Gear. But we found that the, the, male, the male that was most attractive to women was the tender defender. And I feel like you're kind of describing right, a tender okay, defender. <laughs> I really want to talk to you about that. So, okay. So, mm-hmm. I've... Um, <clears throat> I've been involved in an email exchange with Richard Dawkins mm. and I asked him to come on my podcast and he wrote back very politely and in a detailed letter pointing out why I wanted to talk to him, which was very surprising to me. I said I wanted to talk to him about sex selection particularly mm. and then he identified a paragraph from a talk I did with Sam Harris that nailed exactly why I wanted to talk with Dawkins. Okay. So Dawkins is the blind watchmaker guy, right? And, and he's anti-teleological to the core and also, also anti-religious, et cetera. And people know about Dawkins and Dawkins is an admirable person intellectually, but this there, the evolutionary psychologist biologists are not taking the issue of sexual selection seriously enough in relationship to value. So let's take what you just said Hmm. All right. So imagine this. You tell me if you think this is wrong, because I really want to know if it's wrong. Men, women do this too, but we're going to sex differentiate for for the time being. Men organize hierarchies around tasks. They want to get something done. Okay. And it's something that everyone in the group wants to get done. And so as soon as they aggregate themselves towards the task, a hierarchy of competence emerges because there's individual Hmm. differences. And if the group's functional, they let the guys who are better at the task rise to the top. Okay, now imagine that across tasks, there's a proclivity for some men to rise and others not to. And those would be men who are competent and generous across tasks. And so they're more likely to emerge as successful in the domain of of task-related hierarchies. All right? 
Now we know that women are, what's the word? They mate across and up hierarchies. It's one of well, their rela defined... relational. Yeah, yes, they're they're men mate across and down hierarchies. Women mate across and up, and that's right. obvious cross culturally. It's ameliorated to some degree in countries like the Scandinavian countries, but it's there cross culturally. They like men who are a bit older, and they like men who are a bit above them in the hierarchical game. Let's say okay. men vote on who the most valid man is and women peel from the top and that value game drives evolution it's not random it's not random at all and so that's you said tender defender and i do yeah. think that's generous productivity and so not only we're selected for that and sexual selection specifies hmm. that even more completely and intensely intensely so men so can men can gain yeah. that by by displaying trappings of wealth and like the pickup artist types they mimic tender defender and they can fool yeah. women that way but women you know by and large are looking for cues for for exactly that competence and the capacity to protect the ability to protect why out what else would you want for your children you know you yeah i mean what you're saying links so much to zahavi's handicap principle in evolutionary psychology you know that you need honest reliable signals um uh do uh like, like women are pretty smart at at, at seeing uh bullshit <laughs> you know like yeah. well they're they're the, the survival of their children depends on it that's why they're, so they're they, extremely they, smart yeah. at it as they should mm -hmm. be and like i don't i don't believe that it's a misreading of the evolutionary literature to point mm -hmm. out that one of the reasons that we have diverged so rapidly from our con from our common ancestor with chimps, the chimps seem much more similar to that common ancestor than we are, is because chimp females are non-selective maters, whereas human females are highly selective maters. And you know, this manifests itself in, <laughs> if you look at these charts, they're quite comical in, in some sense. If you look at how men rate women on a typical dating site, it's pretty much a normal distribution. The average woman gets an average rating and, you know, the nine out of 10 gets a nine and, and, and so forth. It's distributed as you would expect, but it's skewed way to the left for men. Like 60% of men are like a four or lower. And mm -hmm. so even in, in just instantaneous, uh, ratings of attractiveness there's exactly sex differences so <laughs> it, it, so so you put it what you put it very well though when you said it our survival or species literally depends on it i love yes, it i just well, want to then, double click on that <laughs> okay so then the question is and this ties into this humanist idea what is it that we're aiming at well hmm. um what part of that is well what are the elements that make up competence and generosity well we know what competence is made out of iq and conscientiousness that's a huge chunk of it so in general problem solving capability that's iq consciousness is diligent application of that okay so then you pair that with generosity and it's openness, a hell of a formula. Dare I say. Hmm? and openness to experience dare I say. yes well there'd be there'd be a niche there yeah. Because yeah. that's where you get creative types and they can be radically. I think of creativity as a high risk, high return game. You're highly likely to that, fail. But I'm just linking that to uh, Jeffrey Miller's uh, hypothesis about creativity being a, a, a reliable indicator of genetic uh, mutation load, which is why it would be so sexy 
you know, from, from the selector point of view. Oh, you'd have you to know? elaborate out that a bit because this, this was also the case for like all sorts of other species, right? Bowerbirds, for example. Exactly. And even fish, for God's sake. There's. Have you ever seen those sculptures that pufferfish make at the bottom of yeah, the ocean it's floor? it's incredible. It's very aesthetic. Mind-boggling. Yeah. And yeah, they're beautiful yeah. and they're complicated beautiful. and they take a lot beautiful. of work. It's like birds select highly for creativity in many cases. And so you see this you see this emerge out of an evolutionary process in species that are quite distant from ours. It's, it, it, yeah. it, it points to something underneath that's common, you know, even that's common across creative fish and creative people. It's quite the damn gap. Well, this, this goes back to like a lot of things we're saying, because like human, human intelligence, human creativity is so complex. It's very hard to fake. It goes back to like the, what I said earlier, you can't just accidentally get like a 170 IQ, even though there's lots of reasons why maybe it missed a uh, lower IQ is misrepresenting your IQ. But, you know, this does relate to the fact that, you know, reliable indicators of these things are important from a sexual selection point of view, as well as other points of view. Well, that's crucial, you know, because the blind watchmaker types, they say, well, evolution is just a random and process. And there's unfortunate political impl and philosophical implications that instantly emerge from that. Everything's bloody pointless. There's no direction. There's no such thing as real value. It's like, wait a sec, wait a sec. There's random mutation on the creativity production side. So that life capitalizes on chance as an extra domain of creative production. Just And you see that in creative thought in people too, because there's a kind of a randomness about creative thinking. You open up the gates and let ideas mate, you know, promiscuously, let's say. And so there, but there's no reason to assume whatsoever that the selection mechanism is random, especially when you add in sexual selection. And as soon as you introduce consciousness, I think you introduce sexual selection. And, and as soon as you introduce sexual selection, you introduce directionality and so much for randomness. You can't mm -hmm. derive... <laughs> So the the people the the processes that make the watch might be random, although you know what's happening down at the genetic level is pretty damn complex, and even bacteria exchange DNA with each other. So there's a plenty of play down at the genetic level as well as room for mutation. But once you get up to the selection level, like to me, conscious choice is the fundamental determinant of evolutionary progress. And I can't and look, even Darwin because Darwin was a genius, he stressed sexual selection much as natural selection, but yeah. biologists for a hundred years never paid any attention to that. And no wonder, and, like it's revolutionary. To be fair, I do think Jeffrey Miller, to be fair, Jeffrey Miller, I think he did a good job in his book, The Mating Mind, kind of um, bringing to uh, consciousness of the fact that um, creativity of may have evolved due to sexual selection processes, you know, right, itself. Right. And as well as human consciousness itself may have evolved due to sexual look, selection. Look, I mean, look, plenty of biologists have been assessing sexual selection in the last 30 years, but it was it was under stress to a huge degree for a long, long time. And it yeah. is a game changer because sexual selection among human beings, I think, is more important determinant of of successful reproduction than natural selection. I mean, they're the same at some level. Women are acting as the gatekeepers and so they are natural selection in some sense but hmm. but uh, how can you deny the role of conscious directionality in that and and i don't see flaws in my reasoning i mean it, it is the case that men arrange hierarchies around competence and generosity hmm. 
fundamentally, it's not power. Even bloody chimps don't use power. You know, they baboons, <laughs> they're a bit of a different story, but power is too unstable. And so, and I think it's of advantage to men to elect men, even though that gives some men a wider range of mating opportunities, because the net benefit of enhanced productivity, especially when coupled with generosity, is so high that the downside, you know, of the hierarchical ranking is trivial in comparison. You want the best warrior leading your raiding party, obviously. I mean, we want the best person in power, whether it's a man or woman, right? I mean, we obviously yes. want we want you know a really competent woman in power as well. Of course, we, we yeah. and we and men select competence in women too, but there's mm. differential selection to some degree because men will mate across and down, whereas women mate across and up. So yeah. the men aren't putting the same selection pressure on those attributes of femininity that women are putting on men. Men put their own attributes on. I'm, I'm not saying youth, for example, is a tremendous determinant. I think you're saying a lot of really uh, stimulating things. I'm trying to wonder: is there a sex? I'm known like, for do you, that. Do you think? <laughs> no, I mean you're stimulating my head in a million directions. But do you think that that there's a sex difference in that? Do you think men are more likely to abuse positions of power when they're in power as opposed to women? Uh, has that ever been no, studied? No, I think there's actually mm. data showing the reverse. Very no, interesting. Yeah, I, I'm curious to see data on that. Yeah, mm. um, unfortunately, and I, I don't have this at hand, there isn't research going on into Machiavellianism among status-achieving women. And some of that's done at UBC. And I've, mm. I can't give you the details because I just came across it. I'm just running it. You know, I'm just starting to process it. But no, I don't think men are more likely to abuse power. I also think it's also mostly, as a general rule, it's really counterproductive. I want to ask you something too. You tell me what you think about this. So, um, in terms of deep pleasure that's associated with higher order values, one of the things that I've noticed about extremely competent people in positions of authority and and productivity is the delight that they take in mentoring. Hmm. And I don't know what it's like in your personal experience, but my my experience has been that there isn't anything that's more rewarding than that. Absolutely. All things considered, you think that's right? Well, think about what There's, that think yeah. about what that means for the emergence of value, you know, as a biological idea. If there's something mm. unbelievably pleasurable about finding someone competent and of of high moral caliber, let's say, and and opening doors to them and then watching them progress. You know, Jordan, that gets to the heart of my whole pro my whole project of this book of transcend. Right. Is well, that's why I'm bringing it up. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Is I want people to, you know, uh, I want to be able to spot the potential in people that they don't even see in themselves. To me, that's special. Right. You know, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. I, I don't think there's anything more. Look, I was talking to this kid. Uh, he was 27. He interviewed me a couple of days ago, and he was this. He worked in nightclubs for years. He's an attractive guy, charismatic guy. And so, you know, from the perspective of young men who aren't successful in their life, he was doing just fine because he was charismatic and attractive and he had a whole nightclub life thing going. And so he'd kind of mastered that. But he started a podcast and started to pay very careful attention to what he was saying. And it's a human development podcast. And now he's getting letters from people who are saying, man, you know, you're really helping me out. It's really making a difference to my life. And he told me that 
successful as he was in his sort of man about town persona and everything that that granted him, it was nothing at all compared to the intrinsic pleasure that he experiences when someone tells him that. And I think that's right. I, I, and, and that's, you think there's almost nothing more antithetical to a power philosophy than that. It's like, no, dom, the pleasure in domination, which is resentful and bitter and cruel and short-lived and counterproductive, th that's nothing compared to the pleasure that you take if you have any sense in finding someone with some possibility and opening doors for them. They're not even in the same universe. I'm going to go further and say not just pleasure, but what greater source of meaning in one's life yes. could, could, could meaning. someone have? <laughs> meaning. meaning. The pleasure you know? is secondary, but the yeah. meaning is so deep that it, it Pleasure is an epiphenomenon. phenomenon. Yeah. So, yes, I mean, I see that in your book. I know what mm. you're up to. You know, I, I know. mean, you're, you're trying to, like the humanists in general, and I found them extremely helpful. Rogers was, reading Rogers was very useful to me and Maslow as well. It's like, there's something within you that needs to be developed that's of great benefit to you and to everyone else simultaneously. I liked Jung in the final analysis. I thought I put him at the top of the panoply of, mm. of, of psychologists of this type because he took mm. the study of transcendence into the religious domain. And, and that seemed to me, well, I found a much, much, a much deeper uh, comprehension of, of its limits as a consequence of reading Jung. I tried to get there. I tried to get there in this book to, to the spiritual uh, level of transcendence, uh, but I felt like I could only get there after very carefully in an integration way, um, put all the other pieces in place, because I think there's a lot of pseudo uh, spirituality that you see these days, a lot of um, spiritual transcendence where it's transcendence built on a faulty foundation of, of basic needs and actually being driven by deprivation needs, like the need for esteem, for instance. You'll see a lot of these gurus um who uh really it's you probably their, see that with ideology yeah. too you know yes. it's driven by yes. unrecognized deprivation i see a, a lot of unresolved freudian familial psychopathology driving ideological yes. i mean the idea for example that the patriarchy is authoritarian and fundamentally based on power it's like well how was your relationship with your father just out of curiosity, or oh have you ever had a positive relationship with any man in your entire life, whether you're a man or a woman? It doesn't really Have you ever asked that question? Have you ever asked oh, someone yes. that question? Well, I, it's I, not I, a good way to make friends, Jordan. Well, I generally <laughs> don't hit people with questions like that if I see it, I, mm. I, you know, because it's, 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 it's instantaneous surgery if you're accurate. And mm. it's not, so you don't, I don't do that, but I see I it. I don't recommend it. I don't recommend it. No, no, but it's mm. definitely worth, you know, true consideration because you've got to ask yourself, well, why would you reduce your political theorizing to that particular unidimensional proposition? And, mm. but, but, and for me that, well, and this is again, what, partly why I like your book is, and, and this line of work in general is like, no, no, you don't understand is that functional human organizations are actually predicated on they work way better for everyone if they encourage the manifestation of the highest possible human values. And Absolutely. my experience in, in the, both in the academic world and in the corporate world is that companies that abide by those universal principles do much, much better in every possible way. And that doesn't mean that 
you know, I think when, when structures deteriorate, they become dominated by people who play power games. That happens all the time. We have to be awake to that. It happens all the time. But that doesn't mean that functional hierarchies have that structure. And I agree. And I'm really deeply concerned about that. That That's another topic. I mean, we, I feel like we we're trying to, we're, we're actually in real time integrating about 40 different threads. But um, I think that that is uh, the power games going on in society right now is something deeply, deeply concerns me. I feel like even um, I think I feel like I, I've learned in the past couple of years that I'm too naive as and as a human. And I've been trying to actually uh, improve that because I tend to treat everyone I meet in good faith. I mean, I don't care who you are. Like, j- like let's talk. That you can know? be courage, yeah. you know, like, because mm. say it's naivety to begin with, mm. and then you get walloped and you're no longer naive, but then you get cynical and bitter, and that's actually improvement. But mm. then you think, no, no cynicism, no bitterness. I'm going right. to open myself up again and take the goddamn hits. And mm. that's courage. I feel like it's that's where I'm at right now, anymore. actually. I feel like that's where I'm at right now. Uh, it's been a real transformation for me. A real, a real, uh, yeah, it's been a growth journey. So what because, did you see? Yeah. Okay, you said naivety. So what have you, why did I you come to know, that conclusion? I didn't know that, that sometimes, because I'm a caring person and I'm empathetic. So um, some okay. people, I've started noticing that I would uh, say things like I would say research findings or things that I just am curious, just purely curious about. And people would say, you know, that that hurts. Like you shouldn't talk about that stuff. Or, um, uh, or do you know that if, that some of this can cause, cause damage to, uh, to, to minority populations, et cetera. And I'm a caring person. So that really hits me in the gut because the last thing I want to do is hurt a minority. I mean, I don't want to hurt a minority, anyone. Um, but then I started to realize in some instances, um, definitely not all, obviously, but in some instances, there was a power game being played that was outside of my level of comprehension or outside my level of like uh, of understanding that wasn't personal against me but actually there's just something being played out where um if you have a certain ideology there are certain word terms buzzwords and things that you just you just that they're just off limits from even uh bringing into a discussion and i may have inadvertently sometimes like it's like i inadvertently tripwire things sometimes that are outside of my level there's so many tripwires that you yeah this, the the yeah. game that people who are playing that game is playing are playing is the laying of unavoidable tripwires because it's a dominance game. And all I have to do is put enough tripwires around you and you will definitely stumble across. How is a caring, compassionate human being possibly supposed to navigate tripwires? I should say a compassionate person who also is committed to the truth. That's what I should say. How in the world do we navigate the tripwires? You try to say things that you believe are true. And you take the consequences, you know, and you do it carefully and you pay attention, you pay attention. But I would say more importantly, look, you, you have this podcast and I have a podcast mm. and we're both educators and in a, in a broad sense. And, and I believe that that's our ethical responsibility, given our training and, and our now our reach. It's like, well, the way I navigate that landscape is I have conversations like this. Mm. They're better. And that's what we've got. When mm. you're when you're trying to diminish malevolence, let's say, and ignorance, misunderstanding, willful or otherwise, your best bet is to do something better and use that as a model. And that works. And I'm so hardened by this. I can give you an example. So I've been working with this musician. His name is Akira the Dawn. 
And mm. he has taken quotes from my lectures, which I hope are meaningful and positive and also not naive, I hope. And he's been putting them to music. And so he has this genre that he calls meaning wave. And it's, it's not like it's a huge subculture, but it's, it numbers in the tens of thousands. And he's had his success completely underground because no popular media ever touches this. Um, and you go on the websites. I, I was just interviewed by him and he played some of the music and so on. Um, on YouTube, every single comment is unbelievably positive and uplifting in a non-naive way. It's like mm. these people, they've cottoned onto this music. It's all positively oriented. And Akira is trying very hard to make it that way without being naive. And all these people are doing something positive and they're all supporting each other in the comments. It's like you think, wow, that's a YouTube comment list. And there's hundreds of them or thousands of them. It's so wonderful to see that. And so you, we have these podcasts available to us now. So we can have these long form discussions, right? So you and I, we have some shared expertise. We can talk about it as high level as we can possibly manage, as honestly as we possibly can, in as engaging as possible a manner, and we can share it with hundreds of thousands of people. It's like, well, that's a great deal, man. It's great. And there's something about this long form communication that just opens itself up to that. <laughs> and I've watched the comments and people are happy about two things. They're happy about the content. <laughs> but they're happy about watching the process, hmm. right? And the process is more important than the content. So we can model that balance that you already talked about between plasticity and stability. We can model that in real time. And that's a completely an ethical issue, right? As long as the more you and I can listen to each other and attend and say what we believe to be true and dance, the better the bloody podcast is going to be. Well, this is obviously what I live. I live for these kinds of conversations like we had today. But yeah, so I don't feel like, I don't feel like everyone that I meet is um, coming at me with the same sort of, um, hey, let's have a shared understanding of the truth here. Let's get let's try to let's let's talk about this and get to, a, to some sort of uh, generalizable principle. Um, I just feel like. A lot of conversations, um, it's there's a different a different energy in the conversation where it's the, the, like a lot of people are lecturing at each other but not having conversations with each other, and I don't know what to do with that. I don't know how when I get when I find myself in a lecturing at situation, yeah. it takes me out of my comfort zone so much that I don't. It's almost like someone speaking Russian to me all of a sudden, and I don't understand Russian. Mm -hmm. You know. Well, I I can tell you what I advise people to do under those circumstances. The first is to realize that you are not where you think you are. You're somewhere else. That's that feeling of being taken out. Eh? You're, now you're somewhere else. You don't know where you are. Okay, that's fine. You don't know where you are. What should you do? Shut up. That's the first thing. Mm. The person you're talking to is not interested in your opinion. They're interested mm. in something else. You don't know what it is, but it's not your opinion or your thoughts or your ideas. It's something else. Then you watch, attend. It's like this is a mystery unfolding. If you attend, you'll see what's happening and you'll be able to react carefully. And But the, the crucial issue is to recognize that you're not where you... Because what you'll try to do is impose your desire on the situation. You want this to be the kind of conversation you just described. As long as you keep doing that, you actually lose. That's something I learned at least in part from reading Jung in depth because he talked about 
how to handle yourself in conversations where something had possessed the conversation, essentially. Something you didn't understand, it possessed the conversation. Sometimes you're, the person you're talking to is possessed by something that wins if you argue. Doesn't matter if you, what you argue about or what you say or what the fact is. If you engage in the argument, you lose. So, but having said that, I still think the better alternative, all things considered, is just to do a better thing. Not to have conversations model, like... Model something better. You know, well, I try yeah, so hard... Yeah, and explore hard. while you're doing it. Yeah, I try so hard to model um, uh, Carl Rogers' notion of unconditional positive regard. And I really try my... I, I, I can honestly say I try my best to model that in my life. And um, it, it, it does often get good results. Mm -hmm. but, well, I can um, tell you what, what I made of that as a clinician. Because I was never, I was never comfortable with that idea. I, mm. I didn't like it exactly. I knew there was something to it. I, went, I didn't casually discard it, but it lacks differentiation. So mm. if you're a clinician and someone comes to you, there's a bunch of things in their life that aren't right and aren't good. And there's a bunch of things that could be promoted. And partly what you're doing is you're, you're on the side. You're on the side of the part of per the person that wants to grow and develop. And you're not on the side of the part that doesn't. And you can make that explicit and people are actually relieved by it. And you can say, well, we're gonna, I'm going to make mistakes and, in my judgment and please correct me. But so the, the contract, the therapeutic contract is you're going to come. And I learned some of this from Rogers too. So, so it came along with the unconditional mm -hmm. positive regard. It's like, okay, you and I are going to aim for what's better. We're going to mutually dis discuss what's better so that, so that we agree that that's better. And then we're going to strategize about how to go about doing it. And we're going to test the strategies, but that's the deal. Another deal is part of that deal is you're going to tell me what you actually think. And I'm going to tell you what I actually think. That's that. What did he call that? Congruence and well, it's congruence mm. and honesty. And so, you know, if a client says something that upsets me, I'll say, um, I just had this emotional reaction to what you said, negative emotional reaction. We should take that apart. Or if I observe that in them. But it's not unconditional positive regard because there's judgment. There has to be. You want to keep the wheat and throw away the chaff. And you want to participate in that with, with the people that, now, you could say overarching that is a benevolent motivation. And that motivation is, I want you uh -huh. to be better, and I want you to be better so that everyone else is better. That's fine. But Jung pointed out that every ideal is a judge by necessity. And so you have to wrestle with that in relationship to unconditional positive regards. You know, you just made me realize that I don't think I practice unconditional positive regard. I think I practice unconditional regard. Let's just take the word positive out of there for a second. Okay. Because there, there's something I try to do with, with any human who's in front of me, and it's it, it's unconditional, uh, their past, their all the things that, um, you know, it's like I don't even want to know all the things that came before this conversation. You know, I want to see someone on my, uh, with my own eyes freshly. You know, I don't mm -hmm. want to be influenced by, you know, people will say, like, don't okay. talk to this person. Don't talk mm -hmm. to that person. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I know exactly what yeah. you mean. Yep. Yep. Oh, that's why I was so fascinated by, by the ancient Egyptian worship of the eye. Mm -hmm. And the Mesopotamians had it, too. Their greatest god, Marduk, was, had eyes all the way around his head, and he spoke magic words. 
It's like, yes, that's exactly right. But what you're, you're saying is that there, that's attention. It's yeah. attention. I want to yeah. watch and see what's right in front of me. And it's not thinking. It's something completely different than that. It's, a, it's akin to what you yeah. just described. I want to see what is. <laughs> Say again. It's almost like it's almost like a scientific perspective. I want to see what is. I I, I want to see what is. I don't want to be colored by. Uh, so know. the Egyptians regarded Horus as the revitalizing agent. Osiris mm -hmm. was the dead king, right? The the, the worn out state, the mm -hmm. the the no longer functional ideology, and Horus was the eye, and it was the eye that was the revitalizing source because it saw what was, and replaced presumption with what was. And yep. it's sort of, it's, it's, it's there watching to see and being willing to see. And certainly that's an integral part of any real scientific process. Absolutely. Okay. So let's, let's cut off the unconditional word then as well. I try to practice regard. Well, then there's humans. two things. You've got, you've got this regard, which is yeah. focused attention, but then yeah. the differentiation element is also crucially important. It's like, well, let's yeah. figure out what's right here and what isn't. And we'll, let's have a bunch more of what's right and not so much of what isn't. And that should never be imposed. And that's something else I learned from Rogers is like, you can't, you can't really give advice to, well, to anyone for that matter, but certainly not to, to clinical clients. They have to be fully bought in for it to work. So imposing it isn't going to help. You can't, and you can't rip off the defense mechanisms. You can't rip them off people. It's a terrifying thing. Yeah, well, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, but there's plenty for us to be defended against. So, I mean, though that, that, that fear you had, let's say, about being in conversations where you don't know what the rules are. I mean, yeah. what I observed among undergraduates was that, continually, was that that would be there at a surface level now and then, but I could trust the undergraduates by and large that if I gave them something that was substantive, they'd be so excited and so interested that it was just ridiculous. And so even that ideological cynicism or resentment is often relatively shallow. And, and you can entice people away from that with something better. I agree. I, I just like to tell you a little bit about my personal experience. I, at Columbia University, I teach the course called The Science of Living Well. And, you know, I, I just on the first day of class, I just let... Uh, I leave at the door any kind of ideology or just all that crap. Basically, you're all welcome here. Like, let's just start there. Like, you're all welcome in this class. And I care about finding the greatest potentiality within each and every one of you in this class and, and the way and the style that works best for you and how you want to own your, uh, decide how you want to live your life and then take responsibility for that life. And students love it. I mean, I, I don't, there's no controversies. There's no, I mean, it's what I, I love my students. You know, they, they, when you fr kind of frame it in that way, I mean, um, students, uh, they're all on board. There's no reason to divide. There, there's no reason to kind of lead with division in my, in my point of view, you know? I, I agree. And, and I've always had faith in my undergraduate students and they've always delivered on that faith. Like mm. uh, all every year it was always the same. And so um, if I was interested in what I was doing and I found it meaningful, and if I was trying to get at the heart of things, they were like completely along for the ride. But I've also mm -hmm. found exactly the same thing in the podcast. And when I went on public lectures, it's like, you know, you know, I had discussions of this sort, I would say of this intensity with Sam Harris, for example, about mm -hmm. religious matters. And, you know, there were mm -hmm. 10,000 people watching that and they were captivated by it. Well, that was how it appeared. And so you can trust that in people and, and, 
Well, Jordan, can what I tell you something is, funny? What's been your experience with your podcast? And well, why are you doing funny? it? And, yeah, yeah. yeah. Regarding to the, the I'll tell you something funny. I had a, a four-hour uh, debate with Sam Harris on my podcast about the, the nature of free will. And he actually uh, said to me in, in in an email, I think I'm allowed to, allowed to say what he said to me. He said, what I'm, I'm a compatibilist. He said, what I'm trying to do with my compatibilist version of free will is what Jordan Peterson is trying to do with trying to redefine God. So he put me and you in the same camp there, so, in, in a way. <laughs> so um, I think, uh, you know, we're on a similar frequency in, in some in some sense that uh, I don't want to uh, have such narrow conceptualizations of something that it no longer has practical utility, uh, you know, construct value anymore so tell me what's happening with your podcast and why yeah. you're doing it because i mean sure. you're an educator like me and now you have the means this technological means and so what what Absolutely. what have you experienced and what do you want from it you know my podcast has become uh, uh one of the greatest sources of meaning in my life um it started seven years ago as just me turning on the microphone i wanted to have nerdy conversations with my colleagues about psychology um, but it's really turned into a different beast. It's really something's really emerged, uh, which is which I'm really pleased about. And and that's that I have uh, guests on my show who I treat with unconditional regard. And I don't I don't I don't care who they are. Like, I want to engage them um, in the moment on ideas and um, and try to come to some mutual understanding of the truth. I mean, I've had controversial guests on. I've had non-controversial guests on. I don't even like to think of it, it in that way because none of the episodes have been controversial. <laughs> so, it's almost like people say like, oh, you're going to have a controversial guest on as though they're expecting that that the episode need be controversial. And what I want to show is that doesn't need be <laughs> the case. You know, like, it, why does that need to be? Like, is there some rule from like Moses Ten Commands? Well, I think, saying, it's, I think it's 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 cheap and fast. Yeah, you know, and 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 I think some of that was actually imposed previously by our technological limitations. Like, you know, if you're if you're trying to attract attention in a limited bandwidth world, you need something flashy and quick because the attentional space is unbelievably expensive and, and you have to wave a red flag, but now we've got time, right? We can let mm. things unfold. And so, you know, I'm, I'm inviting political figures onto my podcast and mm. I hope I can get people from across the ideological spectrum and, and offer them the opportunity to unfold their ideas over two hours without sound bites and without, yeah, the intermediation of the journalist, so to speak. I'm going to ask questions, obviously, but and that's all become possible because of this technological transformation. And I think it's going to. I had Mike Lee, the senator from Utah, who's I think the mm. most conservative senator in the House according to his voting record, um, and he, you know, laid out his his thoughts over two hours. And what's mm. been so gratifying is that the comments in the main, aren't foolish and knee-jerk. On either side of the political spectrum, they're more like, oh, when, when he laid out his arguments, I found them interesting and I learned a lot from listening. And that's left-wingers are saying that and right-wingers are saying that and hooray. And so it would be so nice as far as I'm concerned if that was how we conducted our political discourse. It's like, 
What's your ideas? Absolutely. Can you lay them out over two hours and still be there and still have something to say? And I've also found, I don't know what your experience is, but my experience with these long forms is that they brutally punish any facade or dishonesty of any sort, any editing, mm. misbehavior, anything like that. It just doesn't fly, man. It doesn't help. What do you mean? Work. What do you mean? Just can you unpack that a little more? Well, for example, if I put up a, a, a YouTube video and I've cut some of it, people are immediately oh, skeptical yeah. about what I've oh, cut. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I cut out I, I cut out a bathroom break the other day and I actually got YouTube comments saying, what are you trying to hide? I was yes, like, well, you don't, want, you don't want to hear me peeing. <laughs> exactly. but, um, but have you found, and I found this to be the case, that if, you, if, if I treat people as human, they tend to act human. I don't care who they are. I mean, I don't care. I, I, very rarely have I encountered any, anyone in my life, and I've encountered so-called controversial figures that, I'm, that I'm, I'm supposed to even hate, you know, even before talking to them, that if I, if I treat them with humanity, they at least engage they, uh, me with humanity. I found that that's yeah. been in the main that's been in overwhelming my experience. However, there are exceptions. I have, yeah. I, yeah, and pronounced exceptions. I mean, I've had interviews with journalists that were mm. where mm. Um, I did the things that you just described. And mm. the consequence was that they wrote something that was absolutely deceitful and reprehensible, and they knew it. Mm. And that's been a continual shock to me, even though it's happened many, many times. So yeah. I would say, Almost all the time when you invite someone to play, they play nicely, but mm. not always, not always. And so mm. it's unfortunate, right? Um, it is unfortunate. And, mm, it it, it's it really doesn't mean that we don't stop trying. It causes a lot of damage. No. Well, mm. right. I don't want to become exactly. like an ultra cynic, I guess is what I'm trying to say about humanity. I want to keep my humanistic. There's no reason for that. Yeah. No, there's no reason for that. It's It's... The data don't support the conclusion. I mean, I've looked very mm. deeply into the problem of malevolence and I've taken mm. it very seriously. And I don't think that I'm particularly naive, but it's still definitely the case that your best bet is like arms open and welcoming. And even though you know that that invites in catastrophe now and then, it's still, it's, it is the most appropriate ethical stance. So... So it's what do you way, think man. what do you think's going to happen to the universities in light of all this new technological possibility? I mean yeah. Have you thought or do your thoughts go in that direction? I mean you're an educator at an elite university, but now you have all this technological power. It's like what what is what are the consequences of that going to be? Yeah, I, I tweeted out something along the lines of my. I predict that in twenty years or so, I think I may have said twenty years, um, universities will be considered very archaic um, and uh, and pointless to a large degree. Now, it got a lot of comments because that's a pr obviously a pretty uh, 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 superlative statement. But I do think I am I am I, I do think that we're going to look back at some point in the future and 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 think that um, you know the the sort of elitism of the uh, of the educational structure that we have at universities is going to be a bit silly considering there's so much high quality information coming out that's going to be accessible to so many people and that so many people are going to be learning things that it, that they in which they do with their lives not through a university and once that starts happening and kind of the tables get turned in a way where the people in power in society to a large degree are um if not if not self-taught but taught through channels other than the most elite universities i think that it's that 
that things are going to look a bit silly about the current structure. What do you think? How did that land with you? Well, it seems to me that the landscape is going to transform itself so that people will turn to further education to discussions like the one that we just had, because why not? Mm. Right. I mean, I see. We, we just conducted something that approximates a high level graduate seminar mm. spontaneously. I mean, you've worked for decades on these sorts of things. And so have I, mm. I mean, even as a professional in an elite institution, I would say the opportunity to sit down for two hours with another respected figure in the field and have a conversation like this are relatively few and far between, yeah. but now you can do that whenever you want, assuming people will accept your invitation. And then you can invite like 500,000 people to take part. So how is that not just going to win? It, it I has agree. To. And, and it's much more interesting than the typical lecture because the typical lecture is dull and horrible. I mean, you get exceptions to that, but generally that's the case. And I mean, you go to an academic conference and my God, it's, it's, it's so... No one would watch any of that almost unless they had to. And so, yeah, that's just going to get competed I out. Can't go, yeah, I can't go back to Columbia in the fall after going a year of, um, you know, there's virtual classes. I didn't even partake in the virtual. But um, when I come back in the fall to in-person classes, there's no way I'm going to go back to business as usual. It feels mm -hmm. so weird to, to stand up there and lecture the students after I've experienced Clubhouse and the potential for that. For, I don't know if you've discovered Clubhouse, but I think that's going to be a, a big wave of the future. Um, I experienced, you know, the podcast format. I experienced all these other formats of discussions. There's no way I can go back to the typical lecture style. So I'm actually trying to reformulate exactly what a classroom, what a science of living while classroom even looks like. Hmm. Yeah. Hmm. Well, hmm. I think that what will emerge too, the accreditation institutions will emerge. Mm. You know, increasingly, the cost of education will be driven down to something approximating zero. Mm. And I think that's what that's how it looks to me. And I think we'll get the people who really want to teach and who are teaching something that people want to listen to will be radically successful at it at an individual level, primarily. Mm. And then there's the problem of accreditation and and. Perhaps universities will solve that, but I suspect not. I suspect upstart private companies will 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 solve that problem. Hmm. You know, because you can imagine a situation where all the lectures are free, but yeah. the exams are very expensive and almost no one passes them. Hmm. So it's breadth of education, but strenuous evaluation, strenuous, accurate evaluation. And then accreditation and the accreditation would have some value. It's already the case that, you know, if you hire someone from Harvard, part of what you're getting is the initial entry process, mm. right? It's really hard to get into Harvard. You have to mm. be, you have to have a very high IQ insofar as the SATs are used. Unless you're one of these celebrities and you pay for your, do you see that whole yes, scandal? There, there, yeah. there's, there's exceptions, yeah. but you're going to have a bitch of a time if you go to the university and you're you're not intellectually qualified. It's going to be a horrific yeah. experience. No, for your, point so well your point is well taken. Self-punishing. So you have to be very, very smart and you have to have accomplished generally three or four other things. Mm. 
So when you hire someone from an Ivy League institute, because of the stringent selection process, which is made possible at least in part by the plethora of applicants, you know that regardless of the educational quality, you're getting a person who had those attributes to begin with. So it's a proxy for, it's a proxy for competent generosity, all things considered. And then the education adds something to that. But, but you can imagine that accreditation institutions will pop up that, that are capable of assessing that. And there's real value in that. I'd like to do that, but I, I, I don't have the wherewithal to manage it. It's too complex. What I love about the competent that you brought in the competent uh, uh, relational aspect there mm-hmm. is, I mean, that's the highest level of integration of my whole book. Like that's where I'm. That's where I'm. I mean, I, I feel like we just like arrived at that like independently. But um, mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's. Well, we've the, thought along the same track too. That, uh, that's true. And there's and been fertilization. <laughs> yeah, that that's very true. That's very true. But you know, if you ask me, what is what is transcendence? I don't define transcendence um, as uh, uh, as some sort of thing where you're above other humans, you know, in some mm-hmm. sort of um, I'm superior to other humans sort of way, but mm-hmm. a very um, doesn't work. You know, I, I define it as a as Maslow called it a synergy between self and world, where mm-hmm. you're and you could you could frame it in terms of competence. Your competence is so. Um, uh, influential and powerful in, in making the world a better place that there's such mm-hmm. little separation between you and the world so that what's good for you is good for the world. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, that's what my book's trying to get to. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I love that, that you, yeah, I believe yeah. that's true. I believe that's true is that you, yeah. you can, you can have your cake and eat it too. And I think that the pleasure of mentorship is really an example of that. It's like, I well, agree. what would make you more happy than anything else? Well, who knows? Let's take a look just out of curiosity. Well, is it a, like, is it a fast Mercedes? Is it, is it like sexual gratification on demand? Is it wealth? Is it power? Is it status, et cetera, et cetera. And you can get more sophisticated than that as well. But my experience has been that there isn't anything more pleasurable than seeing unrewarded talent and possibility and facilitating its development. It's like that's in its own universe. And so that's deeply meaningful to me. But then it's also Mm -hmm. something that's clearly of high level social benefit. And so I think as you do integrate in, in, in your sense, you integrate internally, which is what I recommend people do and concentrate. But at the same time, you're integrating things externally. There's no separation there, Mm -hmm. not fundamentally which is also why cleaning up your room turns out to be a very difficult act. You know, there's impediments <laughs> yeah. there that you just don't realize. And to get, you can't get your room in perfect order without simultaneously getting the world in perfect order. Mm. So, so it's... How do you explain I, Einstein's I, desk then? <laughs> <laughs> there can be periods of creative disorder, mm. right? But it's not a consequence of avoidance. Okay, fair enough. Because I always see that picture of Einstein, you know, like there's a famous picture of him with his his office was out of control. Sure. Well, you know, he probably knew where everything in it was. Mm. Right. Mm. So there's that too. It's like mm. order is not necessarily evident on the surface. That's true. So that's true. So all right. Well, look, that was that was wonderful. I appreciate the fact Agreed. that you took the time to talk to me, and it's good. I'm glad we finally had a chance to have a prolonged discussion. I wish you good luck with your book transcend. And uh, uh, I hope that it has the effect that you want it to have and that your podcast does as well. And that onward and upward and all of that. Thank you. And I hope this conversation modeled what a conversation could be. 
in the world? Well, we'll see because people will tell us. <laughs> I guess they will. Yeah, I guess they I will. I was interested in it. So <laughs> I I got in the absorption. I got in the the uh, you know the absorption aspect. But uh, yeah, well, that's thanks, a thanks, that, that's a killer marker, isn't it? Mm. Mm. You know, it really you, is. You're not assuming you're not too corrupt. What you're absorbed mm. in is perhaps what's most important because why else mm. would you be absorbed in it? So why can't we assume that's a reliable marker? Or yeah. the most reliable marker, even. I think it is. So. Yeah. All right. Great. Thanks, Jordan. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com. That's thepsychologypodcast.com. Also, if you'd prefer a completely ad-free experience, you can join us at patreon.com slash psychpodcast. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. Become a part of the fast-growing health and wellness industry with an education from Trinity School of Natural Health. Trinity graduates can empower their communities through natural health principles and techniques, whether they go into practice to guide others toward their wellness goals or open a store to sell their favorite health products. Trinity grads are equipped to change lives. With 19 online programs and flexibility to fit your busy schedule, including the popular Certified Natural Health Professional, you can get the training that helps you turn your passion into a career. And here's the best part. You can earn the certification in less than a year. From herbology to naturopathy and health coaching, Trinity allows you to make a meaningful difference by helping others live healthier, happier lives. Don't wait any longer to pursue your passion for natural health. Enroll today at trinityschool.org. That's trinityschool.org. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org.